smells Jesus-y. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. We are the aroma of Christ. God has spoken in many ways. Welcome to Smells Jesus-y, a podcast from Three Crosses Church. Today we're continuing our series, following and sharing the way of Jesus. In this episode, Matt Waldron will be speaking to us from Matthew chapter 11, verses 20 to 30. God's undeserved choice displaces prejudice. Here's Matt. Okay, good. Uh, this, this microphone is for the benefit of the recording and anyone who's listening to us online, welcome to those people. Uh, hopefully you can all just hear me because we're all kind of squished in, which is a bit cozy, but hopefully that's a good thing on a chilly morning. Uh, let me pray again. Uh, dear God, please help us as we read your word to uh, see past our own uh, assumptions to what you've actually got to say to us so that we can, uh, yeah, hear what you're saying to each one of us personally this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Bruce was 10 and very excited his mum was taking him to the beach. As they uh, drive off in the car, the family all lock their doors to uh, keep safe. As they turn into the coast road, they pass a bus with a big sign on the front saying, Whites only. When they arrive at the beach, there's a big fence dividing the soft, sandy stretch of the beach from down further, the kind of rockier, pebblier part. And Bruce asks, Mummy, why is there a fence down the middle of the beach? And his mum says, Honey, that's to keep the white people separate from the black people. Well, 18 years later, life is going pretty great for Bruce. He has a successful career, a beautiful girlfriend. Uh, his home of South Africa has transitioned from the apartheid government to a more democratic one. And it was really hip to be seen as a new South African. A new South African was a, a liberal white South African who embraced that change. And Bruce was a white South African and he proudly wore the badge of being a new South African. Well, one day, a mentor asked Bruce how many black friends he actually had. And he immediately said, three. And the mentor said, you mean that out of the 38 million black people living in South Africa, you only know three of them? And what was worse, Bruce knew he'd lied about the three. He had none. He didn't know a single black South African. And it hit him that he was a racist. When his black cleaner came to clean his house, he felt really uncomfortable until she left. When he left work after dark, if there were black people in the car park kind of near his car, he would wait in reception for up to half an hour for them to leave so he could go to his car. So he decided he needed to do something about his racism and conquer his prejudice. So he rented a house in a black ghetto in an area just outside of Cape Town. And two weeks later, he drives to the address for the first time to move in. He unlocks the door and looks around and finds the house is a, a big step down from what he's used to, but it's still better than many of the houses, shacks or other living arrangements that he's driven past in the ghetto. 
So he goes back to his car to get his stuff. And a small crowd is gathered. And Bruce thinks, oh no. Well, a woman steps forward, a black woman, obviously, because there are only black people for miles, and asks him, what are you doing? And he says, I'm moving in. She looks shocked, and she translates to some members of the group who don't understand English, and they all shake their heads in disbelief. And she asks Bruce, why are you moving in? And Bruce knew he would never conquer his prejudice if he didn't really face up to it. So he took a deep breath and said, well, I've recently discovered that I'm a racist. And because I'm terrified of black people, I've come here to conquer my fear. Total looks of disbelief all around. So after a few minutes, the woman asks, well, can we help you carry your boxes into the house? And Bruce thinks, well, now I can't say no, but they're going to steal my stuff. Well, if you want to hear how that story ends, you can listen to Bruce's uh, TED Talk. It's called The Big Secret Nobody Wants to Tell. Uh, it's very interesting. I'd recommend it. The Big Secret Nobody Wants to Tell. Why is that such a striking story? You're all looking at me, you know, we could drop a pin in here. Why is that such a striking story? Well, let me suggest because admitting to prejudice, let alone confronting one's own prejudice, is incredibly uncommon, right? This story is set in the transition in South Africa out of apartheid. And even in that context, people were shocked that someone would admit to be a racist and ask for help with it. Even in that context, where it's kind of publicly on the agenda, this is what we're all doing, but no individual can own up. Let me suggest it's the same in Australia today. It's much more common to hear people say, I'm not prejudiced, but... You hear that, you never hear, I think I might be prejudiced. Can you help me? I think that's partly because no one thinks they are prejudiced. We think it's something that other people do. And yet, prejudice remains a big problem. Well, the part of the Bible we're up to today as we work through Matthew's Gospel, uh, we're working through chapters 10 to 13, kind of a, a kind of meaty heart of Matthew's Gospel, all about following and sharing the way of Jesus. And we're just up to this bit. And uh, I think the key idea here is that uh, Jesus praises God the Father that he is not prejudiced. You see that in Matthew 11, verses 25 and 26. At that time, Jesus said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and learned and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for this is what you were pleased to do. So I think this, this part of Matthew's gospel uh, is in lots of ways not going to be what we expect because I think it's going to challenge us to consider whether we're prejudiced. Its, uh, its solution to prejudice is also probably not going to be what lots of us expect because it's different to our kind of cultural assumptions about how God would work and how prejudice would be fixed. So let me try and give you the whole thing in a nutshell first. Uh, so you can brace yourselves for us to work through the passage. So here's the big idea. God's undeserved choice 
displaces prejudice. God's undeserved choice displaces prejudice. Right? The ultimate basis for how the world works is God's undeserved choice. And so the more we understand and believe that, the less prejudiced we will be. Uh, let me say it again another way. God's undeserved choice displaces prejudice. So the ultimate difference between people is God's undeserved choice. Therefore, because the difference is undeserved, people are equal in value regardless of their differences. So I think two things are kind of counterintuitive, not what we might expect about this. Firstly, the Bible teaches that God has ultimate control over everything that happens. I mean, there are lots of other factors involved in what happens, uh, from the wonder of physics, natural biological processes, the way people interact, the way children are brought up, the very important factor of the real choices that human beings make and that we're genuinely responsible for. But underneath all those things of how the world works, underneath all those things, God is ultimately in control. Uh, therefore, the differences between people and even the big differences between people, like uh, who trusts in Jesus and are reconciled to God and go to heaven and those who reject Jesus and are punished for their sin and are separated from God forever. Those big differences even are ultimately due to God's undeserved choice. Just to clarify that, uh, the Bible says all of us make genuine decisions. All of us make decisions that are selfish and arrogant and are contaminated by our own sinfulness. And all of us deserve God to punish us forever. But God in his godly kindness just chooses to save some of us and as a result we decide to turn and trust Jesus making a real decision he forgives us and takes us to heaven to transform us into the people we're designed to be so the first thing that's countercultural in this passage counterintuitive maybe not what we expect is that God has ultimate control over everything that happens even though there are you know physical laws and real decisions involved in the everyday uh, the, the second thing is uh, the ultimate reason for that choice is not anything about us, but solely a matter of God's choice. God doesn't choose who will trust Jesus based on seeing our potential or our need or believing we're more deserving or more intelligent or more of anything. The basis of the choice resolves, resides solely in God. It's just God's choice. And that leaves no room for prejudice. Right? When we understand that God's ultimately running the universe and he's not prejudiced, that means we can't be prejudiced. You can't avoid the fact that prejudice is untrue, wrong, harmful. It doesn't work because God's not prejudiced. God doesn't choose people because of their race or culture or sex or gender or intelligence or common sense, statistical normalness or weirdness or any characteristic of us. And so none of those things determine our value. We are equal in God's eyes, but God still chooses just in his will. Let me give an analogy. So let me, let me tell you a, a made-up story that's just a little bit like this, just, just a little bit. Imagine there's a terrible worldwide disaster of some kind and only three people survive, right? The rest of the human population is killed. Three young people survive, three good friends, a woman and two men. After a few weeks, it becomes clear 
that they're going to be able to make a new life. So the woman says to the two blokes, let me put the cards on the table. Sooner or later, one way or another, I am going to end up in a sexual relationship with one of you. So I'm going to have to choose. So I feel like I should just do that deliberately and openly rather than there being any kind of secrecy or uh, theorizing behind closed doors and then people's feelings getting confused or whatever. I thought I should just put my cards on the table. So I thought about both of you and uh, it seems to me you're both equally good options. I'm equally attracted to both of you. You're both equally good friends, equally good guys to, you know, for the future of the world. I want you to continue to be friends. Like, how do I decide? I think it would be unfair on your friendship between the two of you to make you decide. I think it would be unfair to my respect for both of you for me to flip a coin. So I've just said, I said to myself, I've got to make a choice. Even though there's no basis in the two of you for why I could choose, I've got to just find some way to decide and then stick to it. So for the sake of me taking responsibility, uh, and not putting you in a position where you've got to compete with each other or anything. I've just made a decision, and it's not based on anything about either of you. Now, I realize the problem with this illustration is whether the woman is believable. Like, I'm not sure if it's even possible for a human being to make a decision that way, right? But God tells in the Bible that is how he decides. That is how God decides who he will draw to Jesus in faith. That's how he ultimately makes that decision. And so we need to trust him that he's telling us the truth about himself and how he makes those decisions. So the ultimate difference between people is God's undeserved choice. Therefore, because the difference is undeserved, people are equal regardless of their differences. So that's the big idea of today's talk. Um, even if you aren't persuaded, hopefully you understand it, because now we're going to work through the Bible passage and I want to show you the, the details and I don't want you to get lost uh, so if you, now you know where we're going, hopefully you won't get lost. God's undeserved choice displaces prejudice. So here we go. Matthew eleven twenty to 30 has three main sections. Verses 20 to 24 uh, is mourning for people who think they are too good to follow Jesus. Verses 25 to 27 is praising God for his undeserved choice displacing prejudice. And verses 28 to 30 is inviting anyone to find rest in Jesus. So verses 20 to 24, to start with, Jesus says, woe to you, and then names some places. Woe means something like, oh, it's terrible, or I'm just so sad, right? So he's expressing his kind of grief, distress about this. And, and then the places he names are cities around the north of the Sea of Galilee, which is Jesus' home turf. That's kind of where he's from, where he's grown up. And he expresses how terrible their situation is by comparing them with cities that they themselves thought of as the really bad cities. And says, you guys are worse than that. So let me read from verse 20. Then Jesus began to denounce the towns in which most of his miracles had been performed because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the miracles that were performed in you had been performed in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable for Tyre and Sidon on the day of judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be lifted to the heavens? No, you will go down to Hades. 
For if the miracles that were performed in you had been performed in Sodom, it would have remained to this day. But I tell you that it will be more bearable for Sodom on the day of judgment than for you. So here Jesus is mourning for people who think they are too good to follow him. And by doing that, he's warning everybody how terrible it is to make that mistake. Tyre and Sidon are just north of Israel on the coast of the Mediterranean Sea. They were national neighbours. And they were seen something like, by the Jews, they were seen something like ignorant barbarians. Right? So the last quarter of the book of 1 Kings tells the story of the prophet Elijah struggling under the terrifying reign of King Ahab and Queen Jezebel. And how did this happen? Well, Ahab had married Jezebel from Sidon and had adopted the oppressive paganism of Tyre and Sidon. That was the history. And there they were, just north of Galilee, being a bad influence on the young people. But Jesus says, on the day of God's final judgment, Chorazin and Bethsaida, these cities by the Sea of Galilee, will be punished worse than Tyre and Sidon. Because they saw Jesus' mighty works, but they did not turn and believe in him. Similarly, the story of Sodom and Gomorrah is told in Genesis chapters 18 to 19. God visited Abraham and told him, the complaints that people make about Sodom are so bad. Their sin is apparently so awful that I've come down to judge them, to kind of evaluate them and carry out the right punishment. And Abraham says, because he knows how bad Sodom is, surely you won't destroy the whole city if there are some good people there. That wouldn't be fair. And God says, sure, I'll spare the whole city if there are 10 good people. And so two uh, angels go undercover to the city. Check it out. And there are not 10 good people. And the men of the city try to rape them. And that seems to be their normal way to treat visitors. So the angels get the couple of good people out of the city. And then sulfur and fire rains on the city. And the city with all the remaining inhabitants is destroyed. Now in case it's not obvious, this sort of thing hardly ever happens. Right? The Bible records a few times where God does this sort of thing, like where the whole earth opens up and swallows people, you know, those kind of massive uh, immediate judgments. That occasionally happens, but most of the time, uh, God shows his incredible patience and he sorts out justice by working between people rather than just, you know, dialing up a localized storm of the end of the world. Uh, but, but Sodom, the point is, Sodom was so bad. Sodom was so bad. That's what God did. And Jesus says on the day of God's ultimate judgment, Capernaum will be punished worse than Sodom because Capernaum saw Jesus' mighty works but did not repent and believe in him. So this passage shows that the general response of people to Jesus in his own time and place, his own people. Jesus said he had come to bring about God's kingdom on earth. So people needed to turn their lives around to get ready to participate in that. And Jesus' message was that anyone could be part of it. Just turn around and trust me. But the general response was, we don't need to turn our lives around. We're not like those ignorant barbarians in Tyre and Sidon. We don't need to turn our lives around. We're not like terrible people in like Sodom and Gomorrah. But Jesus says to them, if those people had had the opportunities you have had, 
they would have turned their lives around. In other words, the different circumstances hide the fact that deep down, you are actually worse than them. Well, I started off with that story of Bruce who uh, grew up and admitted that he was prejudiced. And like I said, that's a very unusual thing to do. And yet, given that prejudice is still a problem, there must still be people that are prejudiced. And so those people need to admit it to themselves and change. It seems, I I could could be wrong about this, but my impression is it's very, uh, you know, it's sort of not, almost not allowed in kind of our culture to admit that you're prejudiced. But the great irony is that if you talk to people who are kind of experts in like the causes of prejudice, they would tell you, we're all prejudiced. It's just a matter of degree. So for example, one of the uh, very robust findings of social psychology is something called the fundamental attribution error. The fundamental attribution error is a tendency to look at myself and other people on different bases, or us and them, to evaluate us and them on completely different grounds. When we look at us, we explain bad behaviour as just due to the circumstances, and good behaviour as because we're good people. But when we look at other people, people who we don't identify with, we tend to explain uh, good behaviour as due to the circumstances, and bad behavior as because they're bad people. So the tendency is to think, well, I lied because I had to in the circumstances. That person over there lied because they're a liar. I told the truth because I'm an honest person. That person lied the truth, sorry, that person told the truth because it was just the best thing in the circumstances. Uh, I take things that don't officially belong to me because no one's going to miss it and everyone does it. But that person over there, they take things that don't belong to them because they don't respect other people's property. I refrain from breaking and entering because I'm a good, hardworking person. That person refrains from breaking and entering because they're afraid of getting caught. See how it works? When we look at ourselves and people we identify with, us, we explain bad behaviour as just due to the circumstances and good behaviour as due to, well, we're really good people. But when we look at people who we don't identify with, people who are the other, we explain bad behaviour as because they're bad people and good behaviour just because they had to do something good accidentally. Right? That's the basis of how all prejudice, that's how prejudice happens, is we're all inclined to compare ourselves with other people to make ourselves feel good. We're all inclined to deal with the comparisons between people in a way that just pretends everything's okay with us. Uh, This is very difficult to see in ourselves. Let me suggest just one place we can look for it. Ask yourself this question. Who can you not accept advice from? I mean, I don't mean you should do everything that everyone tells you or else you're prejudiced, but, but by accepting advice, I mean considering it seriously, right? My mum gives me advice, I may not do it, but I take it seriously because she's my mum. 
Well, is there a category of people who you could not take advice seriously from? Black people? Women? Children? Gay people? Muslims? Somebody else? Right, when I find myself thinking, well, I, can, I could never learn anything from that person. They are, insert category. If I find myself thinking like that, it probably means I'm prejudiced. And notice what Jesus' concern is in this passage. Although prejudice is obviously unfair to the person that I might be prejudiced against, prejudice is dangerous for the person who is prejudiced. Right, the general response to Jesus in his day was to use prejudice to delude themselves that they didn't need Jesus. And every one of us has this tendency. To some extent, everyone is prejudiced. We at least have the, we have the wiring ready to go. And if we're not prejudiced, it's only because we're holding it back, which we need to do. And because we need to do that, because we're inclined to prejudice by our selfishness, our arrogance, our sin, Every one of us deserves for God to separate us from himself. Say, you are not the way I made you to be. You have rebelled against me and twisted yourself away from loving everybody and treating everyone as equals the way I do and the way I made you to do. Not one of us is a sufficiently good person that we don't need Jesus. So how does Jesus deal with our prejudice? Well, he reveals that God's not like that. And he invites us to be forgiven and come back and find rest in God's family. So the next part is verses 25 to 27. God's undeserved choice displaces prejudice. I'm going to run through this reasonably quickly because I've already tried to explain the big idea and I don't think it'll help for me to try again, but I just want to show you it's in the text. At that time, Jesus said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and learned and revealed them to little children. So why is Jesus praising God the Father? Notice it was at that time, at the time that Jesus was feeling heartbroken about his own countrymen rejecting him. He is also praising God for something. Their rejection, while terribly sad was also indirect evidence of something good. See, if all the Jews had have responded to Jesus in faith and all of the non-Jews had have rejected Jesus, that would have certainly made it look like God was prejudiced. But actually, uh, people rejecting Jesus is evidence that that's not how God works. And so Jesus says, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and learned and revealed them to little children. Jesus' own people seem to think themselves wise and learned. I mean, compared to those backward people in Tyre and Sidon, we're a modern progressive society. Compared to those dysfunctional societies that think sexual abuse is normal, we're pretty good. So surely we are the people that are on the right path. Well, Jesus rejoices that God does not participate in those prejudices. The fact that so many wise and learned people don't get it is because God doesn't pander to the wise and intelligent. 
I mean, let's face it, every group thinks we're the smart ones who have got things right. Every group thinks they're the salt of the earth. Every group thinks they're the ones on the right path. But God doesn't pander to that. Why is it that there's so many people that I think would make great Christians reject Jesus? Well, because God doesn't share my prejudices. <laughs> now, I know what you're thinking. If some people understand the true ways following Jesus and some people reject the true way of following Jesus, then doesn't that mean you can't avoid prejudice between those two groups? Aren't you saying Christians are better people than people who are not Christians? No, because why? What is it that separates those two groups? It's because God has hidden these things from the wise and learned, but revealed them to little children. This is not simply replacing one range of prejudices with one official prejudice. Um, you can't kind of take that phrase, those groups are not literal groups, right? It can't be uh, God only saves children because the children grow up into adults, right? So it can't be that kind of literalistic. So what's the contrast Jesus is picturing? Well, the wise and learned understand something because of them, because they're wise and learned. It's something about them. Children, in contrast, understand because of something about someone else. God reveals the right way of following Jesus, not to people based on something about them, but because of something about him. Now, of course, children can represent all sorts of characteristics. Uh, when people say you need to be like a child or you're being childish, right? it can be positive or negative. It can represent all sorts of things. Well, look at the next couple of lines uh, that Jesus says. Right? I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and learned and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for this is what you were pleased to do. Right? He doesn't say, yes, Father, because you like children better than adults. He doesn't say that. He doesn't say, yes, Father, because children are innocent and they deserve your help. He doesn't say, yes, Father, because children have potential. Right? It's nothing to do with the characteristics of the children. It's, yes, Father, just because it's what you were pleased to do. It's about uh, the choice is based on who God is and what he's like and what he decides, not based on anything in the people. And I think it's not too hard to imagine how children can represent this. Uh, often when we do something for a child, it's because we feel compassion for them just because they're a child. And as an adult, we're kind of wired to feel compassion for children. Right? When you see a pram being pushed along, we don't generally think 50 points for a direct hit. Though you might say that as a joke. Uh, you know, most of us have this kind of intuitive feeling that children should be protected and cared for. Um, it doesn't matter if they're annoying, unreasonable and demanding which they are, right? It doesn't matter if they stink, which at a young age they constantly do, right? You, you care for them be, just because you do, right? It's, it's not because of something about them that's attractive. It's about something about us that makes us want to be compassionate to children. Right? So I think that's what Jesus is picturing here. Uh, he, uh, God makes his choice not based on something about the person that makes them deserving, but based on him just being compassionate to people, him making the choice that pleases him. Like I said, we might have trouble imagining. I don't even know if human beings are capable of functioning that way, 
but God tells us that's how he chooses, so we need to believe him. God has ultimate control over who will believe in Jesus. He does not choose based on characteristics people have that might make them more or less worthy. He chooses just based on his choice. It's God's undeserved choice. In fact, Jesus goes on to be more specific in verse 27. All things have been committed to me by my Father. No one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son and those to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. It's God's choice, but God the Father delegates this choice to God the Son. So what does God the Son do with this choice? Well, he invites anyone and everyone to come and be included. Look at verses 28 to 30. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Ultimately, it is God's choice who believes in Jesus. But at the same time, Jesus makes a genuine invitation to everyone. And we make a real choice about how to respond. I mean, think of it this way. Who is Jesus excluding? Jesus says, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened. Does anyone never feel tired? (laughs) I mean, children deny that they're tired. (laughs) But you can tell, right? Everyone gets tired. Who never feels burdened by some kind of concern for themselves or someone else? Right? Even if you have your head so deep in the sand that you can pretend that everything's fine and there's never a problem. At some point, you've got to come up for air and notice something and feel burdened. What about if we recognize that Jesus' challenge about comparing ourselves to other people, what if we recognize that we're doing that? that we justify ourselves by thinking of other people unfairly. Well, Jesus says, come to me and I will give you rest. Jesus forgives us, sends the Holy Spirit to work in us, to change us, and one day he'll return to renew not only our bodies, but everything about us forever. What about if you're worried that if God is in control of the universe, that ultimately he chooses who trusts in Jesus? What if you're worried, what if he hasn't chosen me? Well, Jesus says, come to me and I'll give you rest. Don't be burdened by that. Jesus never turns anyone away. He does not favor certain types of people. He's an equal opportunity savior. In this passage of the Bible, we get one example of Jesus reacting to the fact that lots of people do not follow him. He warns people not to deceive themselves by their prejudice. And he praises God that he's not prejudiced. And he invites 
anyone and everyone to find rest in him. Anyone. No prejudice with Jesus. That's a great example for us and a great comfort for us. It's a great comfort for us to know Jesus will never reject us. And it's a great example for us never to think that someone, you know, is not worthy of Jesus or doesn't deserve or could never understand. Or anyone, everyone is welcome to find rest in Christ. Praise God that his undeserved kindness displaces prejudice. Let me tell you the story of two sisters and their mum. Let's call them Jane and Jill because there are no Janes or Jills in the room. Oh, there is a Jill. But you're a Jill with a G. Are you a Jill with a J? That's terrible. Not you. Me forgetting. Me forgetting is... It's, it's Gain and Gill. Uh, let's say the two sisters are called uh, Roberta and Riley. Is that a girl's name? Awesome. In my head, it starts with a G. I just... I've done that before, haven't I? Thought Not in public, but got your spelling wrong. Anyway, Roberta and Riley catch up for coffee, well, probably tea with their mum, because she's elderly. And uh, uh, mum says to Roberta, uh, uh, we caught up for a, for a cup of tea a week ago, and I said to you, I'm very proud of both my daughters, very proud of both of you, Roberta and Riley, and uh, you've both genuine, wonderful character, you've both got uh, wonderful families, you know, caring husbands, lovely children, you've both got very successful careers, I'm very proud of both of you. Uh, and so I'm not, I'm not disappointed in you, but I'm just surprised that both of you seem so similar and yet so distant from each other. You don't have much of a relationship, even though you know, we get together for family things. And I asked you, Roberta, why that, if, if you had any idea of why that was, and you told me it's because you just don't feel as good as Riley. Now, Roberta, before you bite my head off for saying this in front of Riley, what you don't know is that a week before I had a cup of tea with you, I had a cup of tea with Riley, and I asked her the same thing, and she said the same thing about you, that she feels like she's not as good as you. So I can't tell you what to do, but I am your mother, so let me tell you my two cents. I think it'd be great if the two of you stopped comparing each other in a way that made you feel like you're not good enough because you're both doing great. It'd be great if you were close to each other and trusted each other enough that you could just compare each other in a way that inspired each other. Instead of thinking, I'm not sure if I'm as good as my sister, maybe I'm not good enough, you could say, isn't it amazing this about my sister? Maybe I could do that as well. Uh, prejudice is dangerous. Not just because it makes us unkind to other people, but it can make us uh, deceive ourselves about ourselves. But Jesus gives rest because God's undeserved choice displaces prejudice. 
we all need to learn from Jesus. Let me lead us in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you that there is no prejudice with you. Thank you that you created all people in your image. And so we are all equally valuable as human beings. Thank you that even uh, the differences that exist between us are ultimately not based on some people being better than others, but just on your undeserved choice out of your sheer sovereign kindness. And so, Father, please help us to be um, alert to the danger of us comparing ourselves to other people in a way that makes us think that we are better or worse than others. Please help us to uh, be so confident in uh, your forgiveness and rest in Christ that uh, when we notice uh, differences between us, we are only inspired to grow in Christ and to praise you. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks, Cam.